This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Governor John Hickenlooper is our guest today. He'll respond to our questions about looming spending cuts and the presidential race. But we'll begin with a listener question. The governor sat down with Ryan Warner Thursday at the state capitol. Governor, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. When we invited listeners to ask you questions, Karen Teves responded. Uh-huh. I think, as you know, her son Alex was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting uh, in 2012. Uh, the perpetrator got life in prison. He served some time at the Colorado State Penitentiary. But he was attacked there, and in January, officials disclosed that he'd been moved out of state. They won't say where because they say the move is temporary and that the secrecy is for the perpetrator's safety and for the staff's. Here is Karen Teeves' question. I'm asking not only as a mother of a murder victim, but in the interest of the public and the press. My question to you, Governor Hickenlooper, is, by what authority as governor do you have under the Constitution of the United States to keep a prisoner hidden in America? So the answer to that is that when we have a prisoner who is a celebrity of a sort who's committed a crime at such a level that they become a target for vigilante efforts, uh, someone like Jeffrey Dahmer would come to mind, to protect the people that are protecting them. You generally take them out of state and you put them in a place where they have the, to a large extent, the the opportunity to become anonymous. So we have an interstate compact with 37 states where we all agree that we're going to keep this information anonymous. So this isn't the first time. We've been doing this since 1971. It's not the first time it's it's happened. It's pretty much standard operating procedure. And it largely is to protect the staff of the prison who's guarding this person because that person becomes a target. It puts them at risk, not to mention making sure that the prisoner is is protected as well. The families of victims cite any number of high-profile inmates whose whereabouts are known. They said you could have looked up Jeffrey Dahmer when he was alive. Well, he was killed in prison because they did not do this. I mean, I think that's a classic case in point. Jeffrey Dahmer was left in a prison in Wisconsin. Everyone knew where he was. The other prisoners became a target of vigilantism, of some prisoner getting to make a name for himself because he's the person who took down Jeffrey Dahmer. That's what we're trying to avoid. What do you say to families for whom there is a deep sense of unsettlement, a lack of closure, and not knowing where that person is who killed their loved one physically. What what you heard from Karen Teves is she wants to know what state this guy is in. So she doesn't move there if she's thinking of relocating. That there is some psychological comfort to knowing where that person is. Right. And if if there was a way I could give her that comfort and yet make sure that the prisoner has anonymity. I mean, trust me, I've met almost all the family members or a large number of the family members of the deceased victims of the Aurora shooting. And no one, I I mean, I was there, I saw the video the next morning. I went to many of the funerals. I I can't even express, well, I would do anything for them. I, I feel so profoundly their loss and experienced it in a very real way with them is going to be a part of my life for as long as I live. Uh, And maybe there is some way where I can, if she's thinking of going to a state or living in a state, I can go find out exactly and and confirm without trying to find out exactly which state, but confirm that, that that state is not 
where James Holmes is. As long as I could ma- maintain that safety of, the, of those prison guards, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that, that Mrs. Teefs has whatever, I mean, again, whatever comfort we can provide. The prosecutor in the Aurora Theater shooting case, George Brockler, is also weighing in on behalf of the families. I am aware of no rule, regulation, law, anything that prohibits the executive director of DOC or the governor who you're going to talk to from revealing this information. If they don't reveal it, it's by discretion. Is this your discretion or is there a a law or something you can point to that says, I can't reveal this? Well, there's an interstate compact that which we are party to, we've signed. Now, I do have, I could pull us out of that, and we have the other prisoners of ours that are in other prisons in other states. We would probably have them come back to Colorado. It would dismantle an agreement and a system that seems to work quite well. But you're right, that's, I mean, that is probably something I could do if I wanted to dismantle that, that system. But I think what Mr. Brockler is, is recommending is extremely reckless. Let's go to the presidential election. You support Democrat Hillary Clinton. How much time are you spending campaigning for her? And I wonder what the biggest concern is about Hillary Clinton that you hear from voters. I've got a pretty full-time job. So I think last week I did a kind of a get-out-the-vote uh, thing late, like 5 o'clock, I think, on Friday. I did uh, maybe three on Saturday and two on Sunday. But that's all I've done that week. The previous week, I'm not sure I did anything. Uh, and do you run into people who have concerns about her? Sure. Oh, my gosh. You know, I spend a, a lot of time. And I understand how frustrated people are with the system and, and how many people, both Democrats and Republicans, feel, you know, that they can't get a fair break. And I also understand how much money has been spent on both sides trying to drag down the other person, the other candidate, and it, as much as possible get people to hate them. It's part of what I hate about politics. Why so I've never done a negative ad. And I've, you know, I've got an ad up right now. They stuck up on the air for, for state senators, and it's a positive ad. But I do get the questions I get most often about uh, Secretary Clinton is, you know, do you trust her? Is she trustworthy? In the couple of hours that I spent with her when we were doing the vetting for, for VP, I had at the end of that, I mean, she answered every question I asked uh, candidly, directly. She wasn't nuancing her, her answers, and I felt a, a great deal of trust. How do you, how do you feel about the WikiLeaks uh, affecting her trust factor? Well, most of the WikiLeaks, the vast majority are, are campaign staff who are either being too aggressive or appear to be too aggressive or are trying to navigate some gray area of campaigns. Every campaign at that high level so I, I've now been in public service and seen several presidential elections, and, and there are people in those campaigns that are they're doing everything they can to stay within the law, to make sure that they're not breaking any laws, but they are trying to win. Uh, and I think that's you know, part of the distasteful side of politics, that it is scorched earth. Uh, but that's not, that's not Secretary Clinton's campaign. That's everybody's campaign. One WikiLeaks email showed a well-known Democrat and former state lawmaker, Alice Madden, writing, quote, It is no secret that the governor would happily consider a cabinet position in an HRC administration, Hillary Rodham Clinton. But you have said before that you would be reluctant. Which is it? Because it, it, that seems, and let me say that the, the Clinton campaign has neither confirmed nor denied the authenticity of these emails, but... 
That seems to indicate that maybe in political circles, it's widely known that you would jump at a cabinet position. Well, I think someone should ask Alice Madden. I have been consistent all the way along inside political circles, outside political circles. I have never discussed it with her. So she has no fact-based evidence. So what I've said is that I'm not going to lobby for it. I'm not out there trying to seek it. If a president or a president-elect comes to you and says... I need you to do this, and you're the only one who can do it, and here's what I need you to do. You'd have to look at it pretty carefully, but I'm in the middle of renovating my house. My son just entered high school. He loves it. Uh, It's hard to imagine a a worse time for me to consider leaving Colorado. Uh, It's certainly not anything I'm lobbying for or would be happy, you know, joyful to, you know, if, if pressed, if asked, I would probably serve. And I'm not saying I would serve. I'm just saying probably because it would be a significant sacrifice. You will release your proposed 2017 budget next week. The latest estimates show a shortfall of between $227 million and $330 million. What cuts are you considering? Well, because we have less revenue coming in than we anticipated, we are going to have to look at making some cuts. And I think we'll probably make cuts everywhere. I think that's probably politically the wrong thing to do because when you make cuts everywhere, you have everybody angry at you. Usually you just pick one, you know, one large account and take the resources out of there. But I'm not sure we're going to be able to keep up with inflation for K-12 and teachers and, or with higher ed. So probably there'll be some level of cuts for both of them. Obviously, the, the money we've been providing for the hospital provider fee, we'll have to find a way to cut some significant part of that. That has to do with uh, reimbursing for uncompensated medical care. Exactly. So all those times that hospitals provide care for the indigent, the needy, the hospital provider fee allows them to be compensated, and, and we'll just have to reduce a significant chunk of that. Do the, is this the first the hospitals will be hearing about this? Oh, no, I'm sure they're aware. I mean, the bottom line is when I say, and I've been saying this for several weeks, that we're probably going to have to cut in almost everywhere. Transportation, we'll probably have to make some cuts in transportation. You mentioned higher education, not being able to keep up with the cost of inflation in that arena. Colorado already ranks 48th in the country for state funding of colleges and universities. That funding fell almost 20% between the 2010 and 2015 budget years. Uh, Here's a sentence from Hillary Clinton's website on college affordability and student debt. Everyone will do their part. States will have to step up and invest in higher education, and colleges and universities will be held accountable for the success of their students and for controlling tuition costs. Will the state be able to step up and invest if Clinton is elected? We're the 47th lowest tax state, right? In other words, we collect, when you add together all of our taxes, we're right about the bottom of the list. So we are generally going to be in the bottom five or 10 in almost every category of how we fund things. I think what she's saying is that if we're going to try and push back over the level of debt that young kids are graduating from college with, and even, or especially when they don't graduate and they're coming out with twenty-five dollars or $30,000 of debt and no degree, or sixty, eighty, dollars $100,000 of debt, even with a degree, that's a problem. And she's saying that the state has a role in picking up some of the cost. Well, I think, How does that square with the realities in Colorado? Well, I think we are working very, very hard. Over the last couple of years, we've been adding more than inflation, adding back into the higher education budget. We're going to do everything we can to continue doing that. But in this particular budget year, it's going to be hard. Back to the hospital provider fee. So again, this is money that hospitals pay to help cover care for uninsured patients. 
This fee is currently subject to the taxpayer's bill of rights. And so if a certain amount is collected, it triggers taxpayer refunds, revenue the state can't use. Last year, you and legislative Democrats tried to take the fee out from under Tabor. That failed, largely because Republicans have a majority in the state Senate. If Republicans keep control of the Senate, is there anything you can do differently to try and get this hospital provider fee change done? Oh, sure. I mean, I think... That sounds so optimistic. Well, you can't do this job without being an optimist. You just can't. You, You wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I think I would look forward to going back and sitting down with the Republican representatives on the Joint Budget Committee uh, and with the Republican leadership in the Senate and really just try to listen again and listen harder, try and hear clearly exactly what their issues are. Because we have, over the last 18 months, continued to, I think, aggressively look at how can we control the growth of health care costs. That has been always their, uh, a major impediment, a major argument that, that the Republicans have used against getting rid of the the hospital provider fee in order to build roads or infrastructure. I think if I listen hard enough, I will be able to find a pathway by which we can get that money, uh, you know, get them to agree to the hospital provider fee. I mean, part of it is it is the best way we're going to find short of passing a whole new tax to get, begin to get some resources for more uh, capacity on our roads, all this traffic jams we get in, in Fort Collins and Colorado Springs, even in Denver, everywhere, our congestion is getting out of hand. I think the hospital provider fee is a, is a, a giant first step to solving that. And I, I think if I listen hard enough, I'll hear what their real problem is, and I'll bet I'll figure out how to address it. I wonder if you th- think the better avenue is helping Democrats win majorities in the state legislature so that you have a less difficult path. You talked earlier about doing ads for some state senators. And that is obviously, I worked, and lis- I worked as hard and I listened as hard as I thought I could last session, and we still couldn't get that out of committee. And so this is the first time I've actually gone out and made an ad for state senators and, and really tried to, to lean in a little bit and say, hey, it matters. I can't I want to build more road infrastructure. I want to build more transit infrastructure. And as long as the Republicans aren't willing to negotiate this, then maybe we ought to look at having uh, Democrats you know, running the Senate. To be clear, you've not done an ad before for a state lawmaker. Is that right? No. Oh. Not to mind, again, never put it past me that I might have been, had my picture used in somebody's ad. But this is the first time where I've actually been in a television ad for state senators. Let's add a a little bit of good financial news here. The recent announcement of a $9.5 million contribution from Bloomberg Philanthropies and J.P. Morgan Chase to partner with the state on an apprenticeship program for high school students. Uh, You've been a big booster of apprenticeships. If there's a kid listening or the parent of a kid who, who thinks, gosh, I'd love to get Joey or Susie into an apprenticeship in cybersecurity or something like that. What would they do to take advantage of this? So we're rolling this out right now in Mesa County, Cherry Creek Schools, Denver Schools, uh, Jeffco. The challenge is to how do we make sure that we afford, you know, all the kids the opportunity. And a big part of this is we don't want to just do this for one industry. And the beauty of this apprenticeship program, so a kid going into their junior year in high school can decide, well, I'm going to go to work. And they go to work for three days And then the two days they go back to their school or to community college or to workforce training center, and the two days of curriculum, of of, of schoolwork that they get there, is specifically tailored 
to where they work. So not only are they getting real on-the-job experience when they're you know, 17 years old and they're getting paid for it, but they're going to get their school be very directly connected, their schoolwork. So this is a high school program? Yeah, junior and senior year is what, it's the way we're looking at it. Oh, so, right. So instead of going into your junior, if a kid wants to, they'll be able to go work and, and yet continue. You know, ultimately, they'll get their high school degree and they'll probably have a credit or two or some credits towards college. Uh, and they'll have a relationship with a business. You know, this isn't like the old apprenticeships where it was only trade, right? Uh, electricians or plumbers or pipe fitters. This is going to be for everybody. So you can go to work at an insurance company or an advanced manufacturing company or a cybersecurity company. Does this remove the incentive to go to college and just to immediately join the workforce? Which, you know, some might think is great and some might think is, well, I is don't not. Thi- I don't think it... I mean, for the last 30 years, we've been pushing as hard as we can to get people to go to college. And 30 years ago... 29%, 28 29% of our young people got a college degree, of, you know, four-year degree in six years. All this, 30 years later and billions of dollars later, we're now up to a little over 30%, right? In other words, there are a large number of our young people that are never going to get that four-year degree. And, most and you see all, this as a way of supporting them. Yeah, why don't they? They should, they're our citizens. They deserve an education. They deserve support in, in making their their careers and their lives happy. This is a way I think that we get to reach out to many, many, many other students who we haven't been helping. We're, we're still going to do everything we can to get kids to go to college. We're going to keep raising money for scholarships. We're going to really push in every way we can to make our higher education system the best in the country, even if we are low-funded, as you pointed out. But I think we should be beginning to think about, what about all those other kids Let's, let's not turn our backs on them. Let's give them a, a hand up and, and some real support. And maybe they'll wind up earning more than you. <laughs> that's that, that's I, quite likely. I say that because you make $90,000 a year as governor. The Denver Business Journal reported the other day that puts you 49th, the second lowest paid among the nation's governors. Do you want to guess who gets paid less than you? You know, I couldn't help but look it up, so I know. Okay. Yeah, the the governor of Maine. Yes, Paul LePage. Paul LePage. 70,000. Who, if you, if you read down through the story, uh, his wife spent the summer waiting tables to augment the household budget. I think I probably speak for almost all the former governors. It should be paid higher, but most of us would do it, you know. Uh, Don't I'd, tell the legislature this. I, 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 sh- I would do it for free. Governor, thanks for being with us. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper in his regular conversation with Ryan Warner, recorded Thursday at the state capitol. Coming up, a Denver man wrote more than 20 novels, but died before they were published. Now his friends are making up for lost time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Denver writer Gary Riley churned out about 25 novels during his lifetime, but he died before any of them were published. Since his death, his friends have been making up for lost time. Tomorrow, they release Devil's Night, which marks the 10th novel they've published since the prolific author's death in 2011. Mark Stevens, a mystery writer and former Denver Post reporter, is one of those leading the charge. He joins CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning. Great to be here. Gary Riley died at 61 from colon cancer, and he was never able to find a publisher for his book, so he did try a few times. Why are you so determined to get his books out to the public? Well, for one reason, Andrea, and that's just how those books made me feel when I read them for the first time. Very simple. They just 
the, the Asphalt Warrior novels in particular just cracked me up. And then I looked at the other range of stuff he had produced, the variety, and I was enthralled, amazed, and, um, you know, just taken. And we'll talk about his writing in a bit. But why couldn't he get these books published? Well, he tried a little bit. Um, it's a very tough business, as anybody knows who tries to write fiction. Getting an agent and getting a publisher is a very tough um, thing to accomplish. And Gary's personality really didn't lend itself to the kind of networking and kind of relentless PR kind of self-promotion you needed to go find that um, agent and publisher. And I think um, from time to time he got very discouraged by just a rejection, could send him back kind of back into his back into his room where he wrote and he'd go pound out another novel rather than deal with um, that kind of negative feedback. Do you think his experience is a lot like um, other novelists? They have this great talent, but they just can't get a publisher to pay attention to them. Well, I'm actively involved in the fiction writing community in Colorado. And, um, you know, through Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, I've met hundreds of writers. And um, it is very common to produce excellent books, um, very top-quality books that do not find their path to a major publisher. Um, one of the beauties of today's world is that there are ways to get those books out through much more um, interesting, independent publishing approaches now. Um, but back when Gary was around, that sort of ebook approach and all that was just coming into fruition. So um, his path was really... Uh, trying to get Simon & Schuster, one of the big boys, to pay attention, and it just wasn't there. The novel you're publishing, Devil's Night, is um, part of Riley's Asphalt Warrior series, which you mentioned. It's about a character named Murph, who's sort of anti-establishment. He's hippie, a cab driver in Denver. Tell us a little bit about Murph. Well, Murph, uh, Murph uh, for sure, is Gary's alter ego. Gary, Gary drove a cab in Denver for 14 years. Um and Merv has two main goals in life. One is to earn as little money as possible because he has a very simple bohemian life and he really doesn't want to deal with any excess cash. He wants to maintain his schedule of work, which is fairly light. The other um, goal in life is to never, under any circumstances, get involved in the lives of his passengers. And, of course, his heart always wins out and he has to step in and do the right thing and... and um, sort of uh, take over when certain circumstances come his way. So each novel is sort of a, uh, an example of his inability to not um, get involved. He has to get involved and fix problems, fix people's problems. And there's always some kind of intrigue involved. Uh, intrigue, uh, maybe the police coming around and think he's kidnapped somebody or murdered somebody. And um, all along the way, it's um, a chance for Murph to... Um, show readers his point of view about the world and what he's thinking. And it's as much about the plot, which can be light in some cases, as it is about just Murph's worldview. And um, he's also a writer. Um, Very much. And I asked you to pick something to read from the series that illustrates Riley's writing. Um, what did you pick? Uh, it's just a little passage from the very first book. And it just um, talks about this dual role of... Um, of what the cab driver's 
kind of presence in a, you know, as you're a passenger hopping in a cab, there's a sort of an expectation of what you're going to get and what that experience is going to be like. Well, for the first time in all these books, you get to hear from a very unique um, driver's perspective. So this is a little quick passage. Um, I was surprised at how quickly I became adept at small talk 14 years ago when I first started hacking. After I became a cabbie, I discovered that it was like being an actor. I discovered that behind the wheel of a cab, I fell into a certain role depending on the personality of my customer. I realized that people expected me to be someone I wasn't, a cabbie. They expected me to be streetwise and hip to things the average Joe didn't know. I was a Hollywood cliche to them. I was a cardboard cutout. I wasn't me. I liked that. People paid me to be a fraud. It was a dream come true. It strikes me that these days with Uber, it seems like everyone's a driver and everyone's a passenger. But what struck you about this section? Well, just this whole notion of um, and with Murph in particular, and I think what's so enjoyable about all the books, and, and that's, I think, why we read, is to read and discover and meet a new perspective about the world. And um, Murph is somebody who slows the world down. He really breaks it down into small components and really works hard to understand his relationship to basically everything he does. Um, I think so many of us just kind of get up and go about our lives and our world, and Murph really stops and understands that basic motivation. Why are we doing what we're doing? What's our goal? Um you know, what he often says, why would anybody do anything? Who are we? What motivates us? So Murph really breaks down every every human interaction and every kind of entanglement he gets involved in into really those small moments. Um, and he entertains us along the way. Riley goes into great detail about Denver. And what picture of Denver does he conjure up for you? Well, he does bring us back a little bit to the um, days when DIA was first coming on board. Uh, it was a slower time, a simpler time. Um, Gary uh, Riley always found a way for Murph to bring in some history lessons about Lower Downtown or Lar- Larimer Square, Molly Brown. Um, you know, just um, there is a little bit of nostalgia in these because he did write them before um, cell phones and all of that. So there's some there's a little bit of a quaintness to them, I think. You get a sense of how much the city has changed since then um, and the world has changed. Yeah, absolutely. These are almost a little bit of a historical novels in some ways, but the experience, that cab driver experience and um, uh, the Murph point of view will never, that's timeless. You're listening to CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm speaking with writer Mark Stevens. He's releasing yet another novel by his friend, the late Denver writer Gary Riley. Riley wrote 25 books during his lifetime, but died in 2011 without seeing any of them get published. Uh, Riley also wrote novels based on his own experiences in Vietnam. How do these compare to the Murph series? It's a, such a great question. Um, there's lots of similarities, of course, with the Vietnam background. There's a lot more um, darkness to them, uh, heaviness to them. Um, uh, that's the war issue. Um, the war and Gary's experience in war, I think, really uh, was powerful in terms of his thinking about uh, bureaucracy, about life, again, about motivation and why we do th- certain things. Um, with Private Palmer, who is the uh, main character of those two novels, and there's a third on the way in that series, 
um, again, it's this relationship between the individual and government and, and between individual and, um, in the case of being a cab driver, of bureaucracy, of who's in charge here, of why do I follow these orders? What is my, um, what is my contribution to this organization and to my own self-worth? Uh, in mopping floors, in the case of being a, a soldier, he's a he's a military policeman in those novels, as was Gary. And um, you know, boy, the the feeling of those novels is just harrowing, I think, and um, uh, fascinating. I, I I think you could write some college term papers and essays about the contrast between Private Palmer and and Brendan Murphy, aka Murph. Mm. Yeah. How did you get to know Gary Riley? Well, Mike Keefe, uh, my good friend who was the Denver Post editorial cartoonist for 35 years, won the Pulitzer Prize close to the end of his career. Mike introduced me to Gary in 2004. Mike had met Gary in the mid-70s in uh, film class at uh, University of Colorado at Denver and become uh, friends with him for decades. Uh, knew Gary. When Mike and I were talking fiction, as we often did, Mike finally said, you've got to meet my friend Gary, um, who really ended up being one of the most uh, relentlessly passionate um, fiction <clears throat> writers, fans, analysts, um, critics. Uh, he was just a tremendous, Gary was just a tremendous help for me. We had dozens and dozens of coffees over the years and talking books endlessly. Um, it, it could go on all day. And he was a great editor for you along the way, as you said. And as someone who does quite a bit of writing for a living, I'm always amazed at how much some people write. Um, He wrote 25 novels, and that's even as he was getting these rejections from publishers. What drove him to do it? That is the question. As I said earlier, I know lots and lots of writers. Um, Some will get discouraged after writing one novel or two or three or four um, Gary just, um, he, I think he believed as Stephen Pressfield wrote this great book about art is sort of a war and it's something you've got to get up and do every day. And Gary just believed in continuing to uh, pour his passion into what he liked doing. He, he was completely, it was impossible to discourage him from continuing to pursue this dream. And it was a dream, even right up to the end. He still had that dream and, um, you know, I don't think anybody can really sit here and explain it. Um, I've certainly never encountered anybody who was able to keep going at that kind of pace and that kind of level of high-quality prose um, for years and years and years. You talked to Gary before he died about um, potentially publishing his work. Uh, how are they selling, and um, do you expect to make any money? We do, and we are, we're starting to see some um, returns. It's um, They're selling Pretty well, actually. Um, the critical praise has been fantastic. Three Colorado Book Award finalists out of the uh, seven Asphalt Warrior novels we've published to date. Um, tremendous reviews from Booklist and actually National Public Radio had a nice little mm-hmm. um, couple of spots. And uh, we've gotten tr- some terrific comments from uh, literary writers like Stuart O'Nan looking at uh, the last Vietnam novel and a guy named Ron Carlson and some others who just recognized the quality of what what Gary was able to produce. Sales-wise, we're seeing some return. It's it's going pretty well, I have to say, for being an independent publisher. Mike and I put together this company. The proceeds all go to the woman, um, Sherry Peterson, who supported Gary for, for three decades of his writing. 
we are turning the proceeds back to her, and we were able to give her a nice size check earlier this year. Great. Well, was Gary ever recognized for his writing uh, during his lifetime? One time, and this is a this is a piece of work too. He had a short story that he submitted um, in 1977 to Iowa Writers. And that Iowa Writers Review published his story. It was number one in that issue of fall 1977, a short story called The Biography Man. It was later again picked up in the Pushcart Prize Anthology, which is the best of the small presses. That story is an absolute gem. That was the only time Gary was published in his lifetime. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Andrea. Mark Stevens is a mystery writer and former Denver Post reporter. He spoke with CPR's Andrew Dukakis. Stevens and other friends of the late Gary Riley are publishing Riley's novel Devil's Night. Mark Stevens will be at the Tattered Cover Lodo in Denver tomorrow evening to talk about the book. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's the poorest, least educated part of the state. It's also the most beautiful, home to premier ski resorts and multi-million dollar estates. Colorado's third congressional district, from the western slope to Pueblo, is full of contradictions, like how a Republican congressman in a conservative district must fight to save a seat. CPR's Ben Marcus has more. Incumbency has its advantages in an election. Name identification and contributions are part of the benefit of holding a congressional seat. But Republican Scott Tipton is also part of an institution that most Americans think poorly of. The result? Attack ads. Washington is broken. A blatant case of special interests buying influence in Washington. Democratic PACs and his challenger, Gail Schwartz, are slamming Tipton on the airwaves. In this case, for the influence oil and gas donors had on a piece of draft legislation. was largely written by Tipton's biggest campaign contributor. But Tipton argues it's important to get input from industry on legislation that affects them. It didn't even become law, and the fact is not much of anything gets done in a divided and contentious Congress, as Tipton himself acknowledges. You know, when the American people, when the people of my district have a frustration, believe me, that is shared. As a congressman for six years, Tipton has sponsored only one bill that's become law. That was in 2013, and it cleared the way for small hydroelectric projects. Still, Tipton says he's best equipped to represent Colorado's struggling 3rd District. And, uh, you know, as I traveled through our district and uh, was just in Monta Vista, Alamosa, Del Norte, uh, stores that I used to look at had vibrant jobs and, and businesses going, now I've closed them for sale signs. The district includes big metros like Pueblo and Grand Junction. It has the lowest overall education levels, lowest incomes, and lowest home values of any of Colorado's congressional districts. It is a challenging district uh, because of the size and because of the diversity. That's Ryan Call, the former chair of the Colorado Republican Party. Call speaks fondly of Tipton, noting that the congressman was a small business owner for 30 years and that Tipton was a champion of rural Colorado from his earliest days in party politics. Yet Call and others in the party admit that his challenger, a former Democratic state senator, is formidable. That is very true. Uh, Gail Schwartz is a tough competitor. Uh, She's been able to raise significant resources both in the state and a lot of money coming in from out of state. Truth is, out-of-state money is flowing in on both sides. Those in the GOP that worry about Gail Schwartz say she's been hitting the district hard, putting a lot of miles on her car. One recent trip took her to a rotary lunch and candidate forum in Steamboat Springs. She was there, and Tipton sent a surrogate. Schwartz didn't let that go unmentioned. 
It's, uh, I've dedicated myself to showing up in communities, being present to issues, to understanding them just as we have approached Steamboat Springs and Route County. After the forum, the fact that Tipton wasn't there stuck with P.J. Wharton of Steamboat Springs, a registered Republican. Yeah, I think it's conspicuous by its absence when a person, and I understand very busy schedules, um, so uh, you know, to me, the, uh, making that extra effort to be here in person is, is very material. Wharton says he cares less about party politics and more about Congress getting stuff done. In an interview later, Schwartz said her message is one of working together for compromise, claiming that 95% of her bills during an eight-year legislative career had bipartisan support. I come from a place that let's talk to other communities that have similar challenges, no matter what side of the aisle. Let's find a way that we can get the support of a majority because the people of this nation expect that. But in a region lacking jobs and opportunity, Republicans are hammering her votes, supporting renewable energy as job killers for the coal industry, and painting her as a ski-town elitist. She lived outside Aspen and now lives in Crested Butte. Ian Silveri, who runs the liberal political group Progress Now, says that criticism isn't working, noting the surprising endorsement of Schwartz by the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, which argued that Tipton was part of GOP obstruction in D.C. The, the Sentinel endorsement means a lot. I mean, if you can make some inroads out there in Mesa County and some of those more right-leaning, like, western Colorado counties, then I think that it's super problematic for a guy like Scott Tipton. Also problematic is the top of the ticket. Silveri says Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump's sagging poll numbers will hurt other GOP candidates. Still, most national political observers believe that Tipton will defend his seat. So if Schwartz wins in November... It would illustrate just how big a wave year this would be for Democrats. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. You can find this and all of CPR's election coverage at CPRnews.org. Just ahead, a Colorado vegetarian marries a cattle rancher. This is not the start of a joke. It's just one story in a new web series about food and where it comes from. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Humans have a complex relationship with food. The online series The Perennial Plate explores that. It's won two James Beard Awards, sort of the Oscars of the culinary world. And for its fourth season, the filmmakers traveled across Colorado, including to a cattle ranch in Del Norte. The way our industry is set up is you can kind of disassociate from the fact that this was a living animal that you're eating, you know, while you have your, your dogs that you love so much sitting at your feet. And the more I think about it is ranchers are doing that work. They're doing all the grappling and the, it seems like around the ethics of these things. And oftentimes I think um, ranchers get painted as the ones who are the ones not thinking about that. The full season of The Perennial Plate is now online. Daniel Klein is a chef and started the series. He joined me from St. Paul, Minnesota earlier this year. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You and your wife, Mira, have traveled to places like Japan, India, Morocco, Ethiopia, even Sri Lanka, all to learn more about these countries' food and uh, the people who make it. What intrigued you about Colorado enough to set a full season here? Well, we had a baby, and a baby gave us some new perspective about how we wanted to travel and film. We quickly discovered that switching hotels every night was not a good idea. So we, we developed a plan to go spend a season, like a fall, a summer, a spring, in various places around the world. And we've been to Colorado before. We know it's beautiful. We love it. And, and we're able to uh, develop an opportunity to come and spend 
a, a chunk of time there. And it was, it was a good way with a, a new child to um, go to a familiar place, but also a place that's so full of beauty and splendor. So what was it about the food and agriculture here that, that interested you? Colorado has so much diversity of of climate. So there's there's the mountains, there's the desert. So across that the beautiful state, and there's all the rivers and the headwaters of many rivers. So it, it just provides a lot of opportunity for very different types of stories. You know, doing um, filming a farm at nine thousand feet, and then something you know in the desert at more at sea level shares a, a very different perspective on on different types of food that we grow. Now, the Colorado Tourism Office is a sponsor of this season. You have the department's Heritage and Agritourism Program credited at the end of each episode. Uh, did the department reach out to you before you came to Colorado? Um, so, you know, when we were starting this series, we kind of brainstormed places that we would like to go to mm-hmm. um, and then reached out to those places and um, looked for people who, who saw the vision. I mean, it took it took a fair amount of of faith in us, and I really appreciated Colorado for that, because we were coming as a series that you know tells a very unique perspective, um, and and creates hopefully films that are artistic and and that share various points of view. And Colorado was really open to us having, being able to tell many different types of stories and not control it, but let us you know tell a story about immigrant farmers and water rights and various things that um, they're very they're just very open to us being creative, which was great. Let's talk about some of the the individual episodes, uh, starting with the season opener. It's titled For Place and for Animal and follows gender studies professor Carrie Brandt. She married a cattle rancher and it changed her perspective on food. You know, everyone in my family is real animal people. And I did my, my PhD dissertation was on human horse communication. So my whole life, I've just been like totally obsessed with animals. And then I started thinking, well, why am I eating animals? And I went through this whole sort of experience where I just came to this place where I didn't feel comfortable eating them because I felt like they like their lives as much as I like mine. And so that was sort of who I was when I met David. What about that story interested you? We're always looking for stories that give a new perspective on a subject, something that hasn't been told time and time again, and also where there's a real story behind it. And we saw with Carrie, uh, first, a love story, um, and and how love kind of can is, is the thing that can change our perspective the most. So she was a vegetarian, and she married a cattle rancher, rancher many would see as kind of combating ideals. And through that, I think they're both able to kind of meet in a, in a sort of middle ground, changing from a somewhat more traditional cattle ranching to a bit more grass-fed humanitarian effort, and her also coming in and eventually starting to eat the meat that they harvest themselves. So our films are always trying to change people's, or get people to think about their perspective around food, not necessarily change it, but open a dialogue. And the dialogue that was happening within that film and the depth of story perspective that was there was really what we're always looking for. So it's perfect. And she says that she lost some friends who were vegan when she married the rancher. And, and it, it makes me think about how food extends beyond what we eat, how it can also shape relationships with other people. Yeah, I mean, food in the end is, you know, part of who we all are. And, and what we eat is is oftentimes even connected to our religion and, and a sort of religion in itself. It, it expresses our values in, every di- in a choice that we make three times a day, you're expressing your values. 
And so when someone feels passionately about not killing animals, that can be a pretty serious thing for them. Uh, for me, ending a friendship doesn't doesn't seem like the the best way of convincing someone about it. But um, that was her experience, and and quite saddening for her. Um, also, I just wanted to mention about why we chose this story. We really wanted to start off Colorado with, um, with something that's that that seemed like Colorado. So the mountains of Del, uh, surrounding Del Norte and that valley, and cattle ranching all evocative of the beauty of of Colorado. So that that also played a role in in why we why we chose Carrie Brandt's story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Daniel Klein. He founded The Perennial Plate, which is an online documentary series about food and the people who harvest it or make it. Uh, there's also a sense of your stories giving a place that food has a place in the home, uh, which you touch upon in this episode entitled A Heart Within Us. That's Francisco. He and his wife, uh, Lucia, moved to Alamosa in southwest Colorado from Guatemala in the 80s. And he's describing a plot of land farmed by 11 Guatemalan families in the community there. Briefly, what brought them to Colorado? I don't don't know how familiar you are with the um, unrest in the 80s um, Mm. in Guatemala and in many Central American countries, but um, years of civil war uh, forced many, many Guatemalans from their home, and um, they found refuge here in the United States. And that story is, I mean, still so pertinent today of refugees needing needing a place and how those refugees um, make up what the United States is. So that that story, I don't know, v- very much spoke to us as, as something that, you know, a refugee from the 80s... Um, and how they've lived and changed in America and been welcomed by it. It's very inspiring in today's climate. And how they brought things from Guatemala, not just their culture, but but also food, correct? Yeah. So, you know, you know as everyone knows, I've, as you taste something that you had from your childhood, it's it's very, it helps to uh, make you feel at home. That sense and so, of home, yeah. Yeah. So those ingredients that maybe are not as available here in the United States, certain herbs and vegetables, they started growing in their own farm to kind of reconnect themselves with with Guatemala. Your website describes the perennial plate as as being dedicated to socially responsible and adventurous eating. What is socially responsible eating? That's a really difficult question. Um, I don't think there's 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 no set um, way to eat responsibly. I mean, you could say you sh- some people think you should be vegetarian. Some people think you should eat only organic. I don't um, pretend to have the answer to that, but I do think there needs to be a constantly um, evolving dialogue around it and that we do need to think about it. I know that it's not eating, um, if you can, the cheapest food possible and, you know, mass mass production and, and, and chemically laden food. But um, really, I think our series is there to to open up the discussion about what that means and get people to remember the human connection in food. Um, I think in food and in politics and in everywhere, we, we do tend to forget that, you know, humans are growing that food and yeah. animals are, are, are dying for it. So it's, it's about like remembering what those things are and, and trying to tell a story that makes you, like Carrie falling in love with her rancher husband makes you fall in love with the people in them and then and thus like think a little differently about it. 
and briefly, would you say the perennial plate is, is your pulpit since you call yourself a chef and an activist? Yeah. I mean, it, it started that way and it's really evolved over the years. I started it more from a cooking and food perspective. Um, each episode finished with me making a dish. And as my wife became involved with it, Mira, um, it began to take a, a little more of a human tone and kind of switch from being like just about eating good food to to developing that personal connection. Chef and filmmaker Daniel Klein. I spoke to him earlier this year. He began the James, uh, James Beard award-winning web series, The Perennial Plate, and filmed the fourth season in Colorado. You can watch it online now. And that's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Thanks to Andrew Dukakis, audio engineer Michael Hughes, and director Stephanie Wolf. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of cprnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.